we can say all we want that yeah i was born a sinner from the from the time i was a a toddler but the reality is we have to take on the identity that god says about us welcome to the dismantle creating community not converts podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, if you're familiar with our show, you know we're not always going to agree, and that's okay, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to build bridges and not barriers. And our guest today is Curtis Vanderpool. Curtis, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Joe. I really appreciate it. I'm glad we connected and that you're on, man. Thanks for saying yes. Yeah, anytime. I love the work that you and several others uh, are doing. I love the collaborative podcast you guys just did. Y'all are all some of my favorite people. So um, I really, uh, I'm honored to be a part of this. That's a high compliment coming from you, one of my favorite people. So I'm glad we got to make this happen. But, you know, if our listeners are not familiar with you or the work that you do, can you give us a little bit about that? Give us some of your background. Yeah, so I uh, grew up in West Texas um, in pretty conservative evangelical Christianity, um, but also in a Methodist church. So I had a little bit um, less conservative, less evangelical experience at times. But uh, man, Jesus became my life at a pretty young age, and he just uh, got stronger and grew from there. And so I went directly into ministry um, all during college and after college. So it's been my life since I was like 13. But after going through some uh, deconstruction, some doubts, some reconsidering things in my faith, uh, I have left ministry and now I work primarily as a life coach. Um, I was hoping to be a life coach more for young adults entering into the work world after college, but I seem to keep attracting uh, deconstructing Christians who are just needing some help processing um, this massive change in their life that they're going through. So that's the work that I do mostly right now. Um, and I'm connecting with people for that on Instagram and online and I'm loving it, man. That's awesome. And it's definitely something needed, especially as people do start their deconstruction and there's not a lot of people around them that a, they can trust or B that have insight in that area. So we appreciate you doing that. That being the case, the, the topic that we brought you on to discuss has to do with this idea of self-acceptance and its connection or its relationship to spirituality. You know, before we dive into that, Curtis, what does that actually mean? For the sake of the conversation, what do we mean when we say self-acceptance? Well, I would answer that with another question. Um, What does it look like to accept other people? You know, actual, like, full acceptance of someone else. And for me, in my experience, that's knowing and recognizing all aspects of a person, or at least as much as you're privy to, um, it's their gifts, their flaws, their quirks, their personality, um, the way they interact one-on-one and with a group, you know, it's everything about them and it's choosing to love them. It's choosing to serve them. Um, it's basically choosing to be on their team and to invite them to be on your team. And we do that. A lot of us do that well with the people that are close to us or the people that have been good to us, but we don't often think about doing that for ourselves. Um, so it's the exact same thing. It's looking at 
the things that make you you, the good and the bad, the harmful and the beneficial, um, the weird uh, and the quirky and the unique. Um, and it's taking yourself almost as if you're a, thir a third person and it's saying like, hey, I want to care for you. I want to walk alongside you. I want to grow with you. Um, I want to I want to forgive you for the mistakes that you've made. Uh, but most importantly, like I'm on your team and I'm committed to you no matter what. So maybe this is a bit deep, maybe a bit heady, but you know, in your experience, why do you think we don't do that? Why is that not a natural thing? A lot of us, you know, if you're, if you're familiar with the Enneagram and there's a bit of a caring aspect that comes a bit naturally for some people. Um, but when it comes to self-care, when it comes to, being on our own team, that is not as natural as I think we'd like it to be. Why do you think that that's the case? Yeah, you know, that's real interesting. Um, I, haven't, I haven't really totally figured it out, but all I can really say is that no one is in our head as much as we are. You know, no one ha knows as much about me as I do. Um, I think about Brene Brown. She talks constantly about the narratives that we tell ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves. Um, and nobody has more access to the stories going on in my head than I do. And so, you know, we grow up and I, I believe that when we, when we're children, we have big dreams. You know, I wanted to be uh, a professional baseball player playing shortstop and a professional football playing quarterback um, at the same time. And I thought I could totally do that. Um, so we, we grow up with these big dreams. And then as we get older, either, you know, someone else kind of starts to stomp on those dreams, or we just start to come to terms with the reality and realize, oh, I am not good enough to be a professional quarterback. And so we kind of uh, all have our dreams, not necessarily crushed, but, you know, they change. Um, but slowly but surely, it, not just in our dreams, but in our daily lives, we just see all these ways that we had these big ideas for ourselves. We have so much potential and we just, constantly see ourselves letting ourselves down we fall short of the things that we wanted to do or the kind of person that we want to be um, and no one sees that and feels that as much as we do uh, you know again back to Brene Brown she talks about like she tells a story in one of her TED talks about going swimming with her family and she was feeling self-conscious about herself in a swimsuit and her husband was being kind of distant through this whole swimming experience as a family. And she thought it was because she didn't look good in the swimsuit. And when they finally sat down and talked about it, she said, the story I'm telling myself is that you're not into me anymore. And he just laughed. He was like, no, I was terrified that I was like, the, the kids were going to get hurt and it was going to be my fault. And I wasn't being a good father. Like, so they were both telling themselves different stories. And I think when it comes to self-acceptance, the, the big issue is that we are constantly telling ourselves a story that often is not reality. You know, when I um, make a mistake, I think everyone in the room saw that mistake and felt it viscerally and is still thinking about it. And reality is they've already moved on. Um, so self-acceptance is, it, to me, it's a huge, important work that we have to do in order to move forward, move forward um, with the potential that we have, move forward with the community and the relationships that we have. And we've got to start telling ourselves different stories, basically. 
I don't know if that answered your question. I kind of got off on a tangent, but no, it does. It does. And when it comes to the stories that we're experiencing, a lot of that is trauma infused. A lot of that is how we see the world. And unfortunately, because of the mistakes that we encounter in our life, which are natural, we're just going to do that. There's a level of forgiveness that we don't offer ourselves. And that's a lot easier when it is somebody else. We can either just disassociate with them or we choose to forgive. But when it comes to forgiving ourselves, where does that self-acceptance actually play in? Yeah, I think, you know, again, everybody has a different story and a different background. Everybody has issues with self-acceptance for different reasons. But I do think as you're kind of getting at, like there are some commonalities. Um, I actually... So I have a mentor that I have known intimately and been a part of like his family for like 10 years. We celebrate holidays and birthdays with them. Um, and when I first met with him, he's also a licensed counselor. The first time I met with him, everybody said, he's going to make you cry. Get ready. He's going to make you cry. And we met for an hour and we talked about surface level stuff, diet, eating or yeah, diet, exercise, sleeping. Uh, and it was no big deal. I was like, oh, this guy is the one that's supposed to like really really get to me on an emotional level. And then at the very end of our meeting, he said, Curtis, I need you to know that this is a process uh, and you're going to make mistakes along the way. He said, so if this is going to work out, you're going to have to work and learn to have grace for Curtis. And there was something about him saying my name, saying it in like talking about me in, a, in the third person, rather than saying, have grace for yourself. In that moment, I realized I, I work very hard to be very kind and gracious to all people, people that love me, people that hate me. You know, I work very hard to do that. And I realized in that moment that the one person I never tried hard to have grace for was Curtis. And when I looked at myself as another person, it like, it killed me because no one has been around me more than me. I should be my best advocate um, because I am here all the time. I'm going through everything. Uh, and so that just, I broke down and like wept for like 30 minutes, um, at how unkind I had been to myself. And so the thing for me is once I started working on that, I found it so much easier to be kind and gracious and forgiving and accepting to other people around me, uh, people, not just, you know, not just the everyday frustrations, not just the, you know, people that drive crazy and give me road rage, but people who like actively intentionally try to hurt me or uh, hurt my feelings or people that say all kinds of things about me on social media, which trust me, there's a lot of that. Uh, the more that I was able to love and accept and embrace myself as I am, the more I was able to say, you know, I don't really think that they're doing this consciously. I think this is coming from a deeper place, just like it did with me. So I'm going to love and serve and be gracious toward them too. It, it's crazy. I mean, we, we, we talk about it all the time. Like the whole thing about like love and acceptance is I remember like going to church camps and they would say things like, you know, Jesus first, other second, and yourself third. And I get the idea behind that. And it's a good idea. But 
what the language actually does is it teaches us that there's like an order to it. And there's really not like it all goes together. Like we have to work on them all simultaneously. Like as I learn to embrace the acceptance that God has for me, even in not even in, especially in my mistakes and my flaws and my quote unquote sins. Like as I'm learning to do that, I have to learn to serve myself or love myself and accept myself with all of my flaws and at the same time that that's happening, I'm learning to love and accept the people around me as God has accepted them. It's really very cyclical rather than linear, you know, but it changes everything. And, you know, people are changing all the time due to culture, due to society, due to deconstruction, due to family aspects and yet there is this element that no matter how much you try to to care for yourself to accept yourself there are just elements that you don't like about yourself how do you handle things like i don't i don't mean this dismissively but superficial surface level things like our appearance or or our habits or you know things that we can't necessarily just change overnight like we can with a with a shirt or something like that how do we handle that when it comes to dealing with accepting ourselves like we would anybody else i i do think that um I mean, there's a, a several different directions I could take that I think one of the most important things is to pay attention to the people in your life that do love those things about you. Um, I, so this is silly, but I grew up thinking that, you know, I wasn't attractive at all because I had this giant nose and a giant forehead. Um, and my wife who I think is very attractive will be the first one to tell you that she loves my nose and my forehead. And a lot of times we, humans are so drawn to the negative. I think uh, Richard Rohr talks about like um, neurologically, our brains are like Velcro to the negative. It just immediately sticks, but it's like Teflon to the positive. It slides right off unless we do intentional work. Um, neurologists say you have to spend 15 seconds uh, paying attention to a positive thing and really holding on to that positive thought for it to stick. And so we have all these people in our lives that think highly of us and love us for who we are. And we don't pay attention to that, especially when it comes to the superficial things like the way we dress or the way that we look or how we do our hair or whatever. Like there are people that love us and think that we are incredible just the way we are, but we keep looking to the negative. We keep looking to the people that don't maybe like that. And, and we, we let those, our own ideas of those people and um, the way they view us, we let that stick instead of saying, you know what, there may be 10 people that think I look ridiculous, but this one person, my wife or my sibling or my parent or my child, like they, they love me as I am. Um, and rather than constantly striving for another person to like me or more success or more, um, attractive appearance, like rather than constantly looking for more, if we learn to just sit even for 15 seconds in that moment of, oh, I'm loved and accepted and beautiful right here in this space, the more that we do that, the more it becomes a part of our inward and outward reality. Now, what's interesting with this is that when you come into 
contact with the church, when you come in contact with the gospel, a lot of us were first presented with the reality that we are sinners and we are failures and we're wretched before a holy God. He cannot be in the presence of sin. And that became the catalyst for us to enter into a relationship with Jesus. Does the reality of the work of Jesus immediately dismiss all the work that we just did with self-acceptance? I mean, am I crazy to think that there's a level of trying to to love myself the way I am, and yet there's a narrative coming from the church saying, actually, you're a piece of garbage? <laughs> yeah, no, see, it's funny that uh, you bring this up because— for me learning to like embrace myself the way that Jesus has embraced me, you know, um, scripture all throughout scripture, especially in the new Testament, he talks about like, you know, I'll give an example when Jesus was baptized and he came out of the water and God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. First off, God said, I am pleased in him. I'm not pleased in what he does or how he looks or what he will do. I'm pleased in who he is. And the second thing about that is Jesus hadn't done anything yet. He hadn't started his ministry. He had not done anything to earn God's love or to be worthy of it. But God said, this is my son, and I am utterly pleased and delighted by who he is. And we have to, as Jesus says, like, as I am in the Father, you are in me and you are in him. We have to start to adopt that that's the way God views us. Like, I am pleased in who you are with or without doing anything to earn that, with or without being successful or living up to your potential. So as I worked on that and and started to really address that deep within myself, it's funny because this narrative of like, we are wretched sinners um, in need of a savior that really started to dissipate. And in fact, that chain that kind of started a lot of my deconstruction was recognizing like my experience of God and, you know, all this scripture that I'm reading goes against this idea that we are born evil. And it took me back to Genesis, you know, when God first created man And what did he say after he created him? He said, wow, this is damn good. Like, you know, everything that he had made was good, but he created us. And he was like, oh yeah, I knocked it out of the park on this one. And so that told me like our inherent nature from, from the birth of creation is very good. We are created beautiful. You know, if I want to quote Psalm, like we are wonderfully and beautifully made, but it's, the world around us, it's our experiences, like you were saying earlier, that trauma, the narratives that we tell ourselves, the narratives that others have told us, it's those things that lead us to act in ways that are self-protective, um, that are selfish, like we're just trying to survive and maybe be a little bit happier. Um, and the things that we do out of that need to take care of ourselves, those tend to be the things that turn out harmful. Um, and when we do that over and over again, we start to tell ourselves the narrative that, oh, it's not my actions that are bad. It's my identity. I am bad. I am born bad. And I, I would say that I think scripture disagrees with that. I think we, I think it's very natural for us with the world that we live in to start being self-protective in nature, but I don't think we're born and created that way. I think from the beginning, God says, you are my best creation. 
and I am well pleased in who you are without you having to do anything to earn it. So if anything, the work of Jesus, who like was God, was, you know, whatever you think this means, on the throne in heaven, gave all that up to be with us and then like die for to show how much he loves us. Like that doesn't negate the idea of self-acceptance. It lights a fire under it. It says you are worth everything, no matter what, while we were yet sinners, you are worth everything. And I think that's a narrative that we've really got to be intentional about how we tweak and change that narrative in the church, because the the church is one of the biggest um, issues right now. And the narrative of thinking I'm trash and I'm always going to be trash and there's nothing I can do except, you know, try to be a better Christian. That's just never going to work. So now how does discipleship play into this? How does this come alongside, you know, mentoring someone, doing life with them? You know, what, what role does this play when trying to do life with someone? Yeah, I think that kind of goes back to one of your earlier questions when I said, like, we've got to pay attention to the people around us who are saying, I see you and I love you as you are. I mean, I think that's what we've got to let that translate into discipleship. Um, you know, I, I've, I know many, many people that when they start a discipling relationship, you know, they sat down and they have a plan. They have scriptures they want to walk through with people. They have books they want to talk about. They have, you know, behavioral modification issues that they want to address. And I mean, this comes straight from my mentor, who I think is the wisest man I've ever known. But he was, he had another uh, person that he was discipling that just really totally went off the rails. I mean, he was raised in an evangelical Christian setting too. Um, And he moved to one of the most liberal cities in the country and uh, basically denied his faith, uh, came out of the closet that he was uh, gay and started actually living very, very dangerous, promiscuous lifestyles. Um, including drugs and all kinds of things like totally as we, if we talk about like the typical Christian prodigal son story, this is it. And one, he had not changed anything. He had not, um, you know, quote unquote, made his life better, but he called my mentor who was like a father to him and was just talking with him about, you know, the, the, all the ways his life has gone wrong. And at one point he just said, why do you do it? My mentor said, why do I do what? And he said, why do you love me in the midst of all this? And my mentor just said, because it is within me too. You know, he said, it has nothing about, it has nothing to do with what you do. It has nothing to do with uh, the consequences of your lifestyle or, you know, your sexuality. It has nothing to do with any of that. I love you because you belong to me because I'm committed to you. And I think that has got to become the focus of discipleship. Uh, You know, we think that the gospel is about agreeing. If we agree with the gospel, then we are saved. And if we agree with one another, then we are unified. But in reality, it's about commitment. I am committed to this story and message of love from Jesus. uh, And that is what brings me into a quote, saving relationship. And it's got to be the same way with each other. As I'm committed to the gospel, I'm committed to you. And that's what unites us, not agreement. 
And our discipleship has got to be led by this idea that there's nothing you can do to get rid of me. I am committed to loving you no matter who you are or what you do. And the more that someone receives that kind of love and relationship, the more they start to accept it for themselves. And then the more they start to embody it to the world around them. And that to me is real discipleship. church and the encounter with the wretchedness that we are, you know, the term sinner, uh, it's sort of easy to cite as a category term for the rest of the society who doesn't know Jesus. We often take that position uh, when differentiating between the church and the world. Um, But there's this paradox that we are still sinners redeemed by Jesus. Where Where do, you know, is there a balance between the fact that, hey, I still struggle with stuff. Hey, I'm, I'm flawed and limited, and yet I am loved immensely. I am deeply pursued after by the, the creator of the universe. You know, how, do, how do we balance those two? Well, I, I think that's, that's at the very core of not only self-acceptance. You know, you're, you're not really accepting yourself if you're only looking at the positive things and denying the negative. If that's the case, you're only accepting half of you or part of you, probably, probably less than half of you. If you're like me, Uh, but then sometimes it feels like the negative definitely outweighs the positive, but um, you know, there's, oh, there's so many theologians and not only theologians, but incredible like counselors and psychologists and philosophers that talk about when you when you only embrace the positive, when you're not integrating the whole of who you are, including the negative or the dark side, then you're creating a split version of yourself, almost like a split personality. And what that really does is over time, you end up becoming and living out of this false self. And the first time I heard that, I was like, that doesn't make any sense. What's a false self? Um, but it's almost like the image that I'm trying to portray to the world becomes my identity so much so that I don't even know myself. And the longer you do that, the more it's like a volcano welling up within you. Um, the parts of yourself that you reject or ignore eventually will boil over and erupt and it'll cause a midlife crisis or, you know, some, something horrible. Uh, it's, it's just far more dangerous to ignore it rather than to look at the, you know, sinning side of ourselves and say like, sure, I'm a sinner, but while I was yet a sinner, Jesus still died for me. Jesus still exemplified his love for me in the, in the ultimate form of giving up his life for me in the midst of my mistakes. You know, I grew up people always saying, um, God loves you despite your mistakes. And I hated that. And I always, even as a kid, I was like, no, God loves me in the midst of my mistakes, not despite them. He gets down in the junk with me and says, I want all of this. Um, and so not only with self-acceptance is that important, but that's literally the core of the gospel. It's not that God loved the good parts of us and hated the bad parts of us. He loved all of us and he died for all of us and he chose all of us and he is using all of us. He is empowering every bit of who you are um, 
to create love and purpose and beauty in the world around him to bring the kingdom of God to heaven on earth. You know, you know, I've really enjoyed our conversation, Curtis, as we wrap it up, how does the church then better step into this? Is this a, is this a seminar? Is this a teaching from the pulpit? Is this a sermon series? Like what does this actually look like to put into practice? Well, I'll be honest, that's difficult for me to answer. I've uh, kind of stepped out of the like Sunday morning, the institutional church. Uh, I, I think that church has to be lived in life much more than it has to be like taught on a Sunday. Um, so my church, my community body of believers, they're people that I have dinner with on Monday. Uh, they're people that I have whiskey night with on, uh, you know, once a month. Um, they're people that I live and work and eat and play with. And in that context, it's so much, it's so much more um, relational. There's so many more opportunities for me to make mistakes and to say something stupid and put my foot in my mouth. And that's an opportunity to ask for forgiveness. And every time someone that I love forgives me for something really stupid I did, my inherent value grows. I recognize this person loves me in the midst of my sins. I can love me in the midst of my mistakes, just like God does. So I do think the church has to get more organic, more relational, more lived life. Um, but as we're in that process, and I do think we're in that process, I think we're moving away from institutional Christianity. Um, but as we're in that process, we, I, we do have to start being very intentional with the words that we use, the language that we choose when we are teaching people about our inherent value, because we can say all we want that, yeah, I was born a sinner from the, from the time I was a, a toddler, I was doing things to protect myself and take care of myself. But the reality is we have to take on the identity that God says about us. And he has said, you are very good. You are wonderfully and beautifully made. You, I am delighted in who you are. You are my child. So we have to be very intentional about teaching that because that is our foundation. And everything that goes from there, our uh, discipleship, our sanctification, you know, our growth as a Christian, our purpose and calling, that all has to be built on this inherent value that we are radically loved and accepted and we belong no matter what. So if we teach on that while learning to live that out in daily life. I think you look up in 20 years and there's going to be a generation of people that not only love themselves, but because of that, they know how to love and care for one another a lot better than we do today. Those are great insights, man. Thank you. And again, thank you so much for being on the show. Can you tell our listeners how they can connect with you and, and how they can find you on Instagram? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can always find my stuff at my website. It's curtisvanderpool.com. Curtis is spelt with a K. Um, uh, it's the same on Instagram. It's at Curtis Vanderpool. That's where I do most of my stuff. Uh, and I also have a book on Amazon. If you want to read more about my ideas toward church, it's called giving up Sunday. Um, and it's only on Amazon. So you can find that there. Awesome, man. We'll throw it all in the show notes. And again, thank you for being on the show. Joey, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And that wraps up today's episode of Dismantle Podcast. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. Oh,